You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and not eating toast cut diagonally. This is season three, episode one, Captain Marvel, Who Do You Say That I Am? I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam, welcome back. Hey, hey, Carrie. Um, you and I have sat across the internet from each other quite a few number of times over times. the last six months. So many um, times. For many, many reasons, M- mostly Dungeons and Dragons, which is great, yeah. um, but also church stuff. We're going to be actually talking about Dungeons and Dragons later in this season. I'm very this excited about it. This is season three. Mm-hmm. Season three. Uh, I'm also right now wearing my new shirt, Nerds Vote. Nice. Nerdsvote.com. You should check it out. Nerds, Nerds should vote. vote. Nerdsvote.com. Uh, it's a neat organization uh, promoting voting among nerdy people. So, Carrie, besides playing D&D and being stuck on church Zoom meetings, what else have you been up to the last six months? Walking with my people through this strange and unprecedented time. I think this is the week that I've been pastoring in Corona Tide, as we call it, for longer than I was at this church without doing that. So that's been odd. Wow. Nick and I bought a house. So uh, my recording studio is now permanently in this echoey room and just trying to enjoy as much time outdoors as possible before the onset of winter in New England. What about you? Well, uh, when, as you called it, Corona Tide hit, uh, uh, we obviously schools closed. So my wife Leah and I started, mostly Leah, started uh, educating the children at home up through the end of the school year. And then summer, uh, long summer. And also, as you said, you know, walking with my church people through all this crazy stuff. Well, and all, all of us are called to make choices. And I've just been, I'm not a parent. Um, and so seeing the choices that the parents I know and care about have had to make, it's it's difficult. And I think my call as a person in this world is to be in a posture of compassionate listening and a lot of patience, just because I feel like the anxiety levels keep going up. And hopefully for me, at least working on this podcast again, will help uh, ground some, some of my energy and give me a good place to good creative outlet. Um, as well as for those of you who need a distraction, Hey, we're here. Nice. Yeah. I, so speaking of creative outlets, I've, I've been doing a lot of songwriting lately. I've written five, is it six now? Five or six new songs, which is the most songs I've ever written in a six month period ever. Um, I'm, I've also written a bunch of children's books over the course of the summer, which I'm, I'm really excited about and we'll see where they go. So that's pretty cool. And, um, but I'm really excited to be getting back into the podcast. It has been a long time since we recorded. And today we are going to talk about Captain Marvel. Uh, And this is the first of our season three, which has a general theme about facets of our identity. And we're going to start with Captain Marvel because we we think that this movie is all about uh, identity in general, but also about how an outside force can... An outside force can shape who you are for good or for ill, for your betterment or for their own needs, which brings us to our scripture quote from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Our quotation from Nerd Canon is from a conversation between Carol and Maria 
after listening to the recording of the black box, Carol says, I have no idea who I am. And Maria says, you are Carol Danvers. You are the woman on that black box risking her life to do the right thing. My best friend who supported me as a mother and as a pilot when no one else did. You're smart and funny and a huge pain in the ass. And you are the most powerful person I knew way before you could shoot fire from your fist. As we dive into our conversation about Captain Marvel, I want to start with the very opening two shots of the movie. Mm, Remind me what those were, because I didn't pay attention to that. All right. So the movie opens with Carol looking at her, the blue blood in her, on her hand. Oh yeah. It's the first shot is, is, is her dreaming of what we find out later is, is the accident with the, Mm -hmm. or uh, the, the, um, the crash, the the crash. Uh, And then the next shot is also her hand and it's just that tiny bit of power pulsing as she wakes from her dream Mm. so we see the fake and the real in the first 30 seconds but we don't know which one is fake and which one is real at that moment so just in those first couple of two quick scenes we are introduced to something that will end up being fake which is the blood transfusion right and then we also see well not fake but it's the thing that it's a thing that, that makes her think that she's oh okay yes. that, so you know, used for deception used for deception mm-hmm. and then all and then but then her power which we we assume a, a moment later that it's given to her by the Cree right. is not right so just in that very mm. beginning moment we have that we we already have a setup about what's real and what's what's not real and how she's shaped so I, I think of this movie in the terms of Veers and Carol so Veers being the identity that the Cree created. Um, They made her that way by the blood transfusion, as you mentioned, um, by teaching her how to be a warrior in their way, which means repressing her emotions, forgetting her past, and working for the Kree's mission, which she also inherits all of the prejudices that they want to program her with, versus Carol, who is a hero who was given this power in a way by Wendy, by her, by Dr. Lawson, by uh, Marvell, by her choice to destroy the core rather than let it fall into the Kree's hands. And that's the woman who uses anger to power her, who is fully human, fully relational, and is not weaker because of that. So you have these two two people that are being shaped. One of them is true and a true identity, and one of them is a false identity. Interesting. Now, do you think that that they are completely separate personalities, or do you think that that Veers is sort of mapped on top of Carol? I think the, the latter, certainly. I think you can see throughout the scenes where she's believed she's Cree, trying to be Cree before any of her past surfaces, she has some of the same characteristics. So there is that humor that she has that's, you know, as, as her, as um, Maria said, smart and funny. Um, so she is, she's a humor, you know, full of humor. She's able to banter back and forth with the team. Um, she's also powerful and strong and wants to do the right thing. And because she's been programmed with these prejudices to think the scrolls are an evil infestation, she's willing to go as far as she needs to go to serve her, what she thinks is the right thing to do. Starting in the, on Hala, right? The Cree mm-hmm. homeworld also puts us as audience members in the position to believe what Jude Law is saying. 
That's right. right. By so the way, we, I'm not going to call him Jan Rog at all. I'm going to call him Jude Law the entire time. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. The setup, yeah. as, I, as I'm going to call it. Sure. You know, the setup where the Cree, Cree equals good, Skrulls mm-hmm. equals bad. Yeah, and, and we get it right away because there's a lot of propaganda right mm-hmm. at the beginning there as they're getting ready for their mission. We we are told the Skrulls are, are awful. The Cree society is the most important and most and most you know, and the greatest thing that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And and this this is going to be important later, but we'll we'll mention it now. Jude Law, as an actor, almost always plays good guys. Yeah. Right. And so the in the casting of the movie, the filmmakers are setting the audience up to believe everything that Jude Law says, and to just say, well, it's Jude Law, so of course he's telling the truth. Of course he's a good guy. He's Dumbledore. He's done. How can you how can you think that that's a bad guy? Um, and and then we'll get to we'll get to Talos in a, in a mm-hmm. moment, but and, and we'll then we'll have our, our little back and forth about them. But then we get the propaganda about the scrolls. We get all the setup about their mission, and um, and then it all seems to be confirmed when Carol is deceived by Talos, uh, right. knowing and, the and code, kidnapped. and yep. and, and getting, getting kidnapped, and yet. If you're watching the movie for a second or third time, you start to see that a group of five or six Cree is more than enough to take out dozens and dozens of yeah. scrolls. That their firepower far is far weapons. superior weapons and firepower. And but in the I think in the first viewing you don't notice it because you've just been told that the scrolls are the bad guys, the Crees mm-hmm. are the good guys, the Cree are the good guys, and we're just going to accept that. Uh, and so we're all set up into this as Veers is, and we get to take that journey with her as both she's learning about who she is, but also about the lies that her society has been telling her. Right. And they're, and they are set up in that way because the Cree look human. Um, and therefore we're more likely to sympathize with them than these green shape shifting. I mean, the language they use, the Cree use about the scrolls are very, is very dehumanizing. They call Mm. them, you know, cells or infestations. There's a lot of, there's terrorist language um, very much in a way of, you know, we are the good, noble as as carol kind of repeats back that um propaganda later when she meets fury she says uh a race of noble warrior heroes um compared to these green uh, they call them ugly alien looking creatures so we have this dual thing with with the individual characters but then also the societies jude law is presented as a competent mentor um i want you to be the best version of yourself which doesn't sound menacing until we understand what his true motivations are. It actually sounds very supportive. Right. Right. Um, but we don't really know what the dampener disc on her neck does at that point. Um, we, and we know that she has this power in her hands that the other Cree don't seem to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also kind of, it's implied that the Cree have given her this power. Yeah. Well, I think right? it's said outright several times that, that she's been given it, that they're, they control it and they can take it away. Right. You could, they, yeah, right. They yeah. said, we can take that away. We gave it to you. We can take it away. Um, and so it's, it's all about drilling into Veer's head, this particular presentation of reality. In that opening scene where they're fighting, you know, he, he says, you know, the doubt makes you vulnerable, but also there's nothing more dangerous to a warrior than emotion. Humor is a distraction and anger, anger only serves the enemy. And those are all things that are very important to Carol. She is, as I said earlier, uh, an emotional, she mm-hmm. has anger, she has humor, um, and she has she has doubts and wants to understand her past and that doesn't make her weaker, it makes her stronger. We go see the Supreme Intelligence and that's when we get the 
what has been given can be taken away. Um, and that, that cuts right to the little dampener thing on her neck. Um, and again, that's a deception because it's actually the other way around completely. They have taken her power away. Yeah, she's not the best version of herself. If she was, it would be dangerous it's, to them. It's the one that we get when they start playing um, No Doubt later in the movie. Yeah, we'll talk about right? that song yeah. choice. Very, very smart. <laughs> awesome. All right. So so that's sort of the setup that, that you know, as, yeah. you, as you mentioned, we, we get, and it's the characters being set up, the audience also being set up. And then she gets abducted mm-hmm. by what at this moment we think is the bad guy, Talos. Played um, by? Played by Ben Mendelsohn. Um, yeah. And again, this is our second example of casting. Um, like oppositional ca- op- type casting. Yeah, it, oh, I like that's a good term. Op- type casting. I don't know. Yeah, it's, 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 un- <laughs> it's, it's untype casting. I like oppositional type casting. That's, that's good. Where Ben Mendelsohn usually plays a villain. Mm-hmm. Think about he's Orson Krennic in Rogue One. He's in Ready Player One as the villain. We get Talos presented as a bad guy, played by Ben Mendelsohn, who usually plays a villain. We get Jude Law set up as the good guy mentor figure, mm-hmm. who usually plays a good guy. And so we're immediately we hear Ben Mendelsohn's voice. We'll see him later playing, you know, the the yeah. um, Shield agent um, Keller Keller yeah, Ke- Keller Keller. Keller. Uh, um, and that's actually the actor Ben Mendelsohn there. But at the mo- at this moment, we still think he's the bad guy. They're rooting around in Carol's head. I really mm-hmm. love that scene. That oh, whole sequence so well is so interesting. Like the the focus when they're trying to get her to focus on the coordinates, on the numbers. Um, if I, I find myself bodily like reacting to that and like trying to squint my own eyes. Um, it was very very well done first person perspective. Mm. And 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 then she, uh, Carol, or at this point still Veers says, "What did you put in my head?" And Taylor says what I think is the most important line in the entire film, nothing that wasn't already there. Right. So she thinks they're reprogramming her, putting something in her when in fact he's revealing something that has been withheld. And she says enough of your mind games. Right. It's, it's all backwards in the first half hour of the movie, right? Everything mm-hmm. is backwards. And then she gets kicked out and he says, trace the girl. She knows more than she knows. <laughs> great humorous line that and well that's i think where the start where we get to see some of his for lack of a better term his humanity his personhood um when they're all just anonymous soldiers it's hard to relate to talos but as the film unfolds we see more of his humor more of his intelligence he has some very funny lines later mm-hmm. you know him mm-hmm. and his science guy he and nick <laughs> fury have quite a good relationship and they end up playing off of those brief moments of interaction um the Havana, yeah, thing. the Havana yeah. thing with the and with the cat with Goose the cat, you know, the flurkin liking him. Um, so they and then finally with the reveal that he has a family he's been trying to get back mm-hmm, to in that right. very humanizing moment of you know him reuniting with his spouse and with his child, um, and we start to see that slowly. Um, it's it's revealed over time, like when the dead scroll is on the table and um, Ben Mendelsohn playing. Talos playing a human that looks just like Ben Mendelsohn. Uh, what's his name? You said it. Keller. Yeah. Keller. Yeah. And he, you know, it turns out you find out he's a scroll because he's speaking to this, you know, this dead man as, as a brother, um, wishing him, you know, good luck in the beyond. Um, you start to, to empathize with them, even though they're still supposed to be the enemy. You see that personhood unfold over time. Mm, right, right. And, and it's almost like the Kree's personhood, uh, we actually lose some of it the more yeah. we, we talk to Yon Rog slash Jude Law, um, especially when he when he finally calls in Ronan 
So we, we see the, what the Cree is capable of, that in order to wipe out what they consider an infestation, they're going to destroy, we, we assume, all life on this planet. That's, that's the idea of the accusers, right? The, the, the ships that are coming just to firebomb things. Do we want to shift gears and talk about Jesus for a minute and then come back to Carol? Yeah, let's talk about Jesus. All right. Well, I like talking about Jesus. Yeah, I think that's part of my job, maybe. <laughs> my vocation. Both on this podcast and in, and in life. <laughs> in real life. Uh, yeah, so, so the, set us up. Set us up on this Matthew 16 passage. The passage that we picked for our scriptural quote is this sort of um, trying to understand the, the marvel that is, oh gosh, that was a bad pun. <clears throat> <laughs> the kind of living miracle that is Jesus causes lots of questions. And people are always wondering, like, who are you? Are you John the Baptist? Are you Elijah? Or are you some other prophet? And Jesus is asking Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? And we receive the answer, which ends up being the right answer. You are the, mis- hey, one good thing for Peter he didn't always screw up. Yeah, that's true. That accurately, you are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Yeah, Peter doesn't screw up in in his identification, just in his understanding of what a Messiah is. Because with the part of the passage that we didn't read, which is the next section, is the one where Peter says, "God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you." After Jesus says, "And guess what, guys? I'm going to die. I'm going to get killed." You know, a, a combination of the religious and secular authorities are going to kill me. And by the way, I'm going to rise three days later, which they kind of, they missed that bit. And so the, the question here, you know, and I think how it fits really well with Captain Marvel is what is the society thinking about who this person Jesus is? Who is Jesus think, saying that he is? But then we also have the wrinkle of who is the community who's writing the gospel saying about about that as well as they're writing down the text and they're all a little bit different, but, and, and yet they, they help kind of come together to, to make this uh, understanding that we have here when we say you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right. And um, here's what, and here's what you do. Here's what that entails. Yeah. And I'm going to redefine what a Messiah is for you. Jesus is going to redefine that. So it's not, it's not, it's neither sort of this muscle bound warrior Mm-hmm. Nor is it nor is it necessarily the messianic age in which the nation of Israel is going to rise above all things, right? It, 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 it is instead this servant who is going to die because he is unwilling to sacrifice his beliefs and what he and what he does in order to bring people back to God. And that, and doing it out of love, not out of a some kind of political agenda. It's 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 out of love. And I guess I'm thinking of how we often recreate Jesus in, to fit our own agenda rather than letting our agendas fit who Jesus is and the ways in which the name of Jesus is invoked for things that I really don't think he stands for. We're trying, you know, people try to apply their agenda to Jesus rather than vice versa. And I think of that as, you know, in this discussion of Captain Marvel, rather than letting Carol be who she actually is, they're trying to, the Cree the are trying to recreate her to be a, their agent, their tool to be used in their larger plot. And it's not until near the end of the movie where we really see her realizing all that she can do. And of course, those of us who know, have seen a lot of the other Marvel movies, we know what the Tesseract is, it's the Space Stone. And so now we kind of understand what the powers are and how they work. For Carol to understand what she's capable of, uh, it's just, it's, it's like this wonderful moment of exuberant self-discovery. Like she's got a smile on her face the whole time when she realizes all of these things that she can do. 
Yeah, let's let's talk about that awakening moment because there's a there's a couple of very critical scenes toward the end of the film where she's her her memory her emerging memories re, you know meeting back with Maria seeing Monica again adorable Monica um, for the first time since she was a little girl combines and and discovering that this plot around um, Talos and how he's actually not a bad guy all of that awakening happens at the same time as her releasing her powers and then it finally comes down to the you know on the ship realizing how strong she is I kind of wonder if her powers are intimately tied to her memories and if she was to be fully fully engaged with engaging with her powers if the her memories would be back like if the dampener was dampening both her powers and her memories. Oh, interesting. And if she oh, was to access yeah, yeah. her full powers, she would inevitably have to have her memories and they didn't want her to have her memories. And so when she when she's able to basically defeat the supreme intelligence the second time around, that's when the dampener breaks off. She now is fully accessing of her of her memories and her power. That's interesting because when the moment she's granted her powers is the moment that she is knocked unconscious and then wakes up as a as a Cree operative. So she's never actually used her powers to their fullest extent until this yeah. moment. And then and then she unleashes it. And there's that fabulous scene, which as you mentioned, you know, I'm just a girl by uh, no doubt is playing, which the, you know, the lyrics of that are very much about like breaking out of the limits that are being set for us by other people. I've had it up to here. Yeah. So good. Listen to it. I mean, just, <laughs> just listening to it in full with, with that scene of her discovering she can move beyond the limits that have been set for her. And she can do it with her full power, with her humor and her sass on display. That those are not distractions or weaknesses, that her anger is able to fuel her to do what is right. And it really is Veers and Carol combined. Combined. All the all the best of all the best of the Cree training with mm-hmm. all the best of what it, you know, of who Carol is. And I do think it's important having Monica be kind of not Monica, sorry, Maria being the key to her path. Well, I guess it's Maria and Monica filling in the blanks of who she is. We chose that quotation from Nerd Canon of Maria telling her who she is and not telling her like Jude Law said of to control her and to shape her in the the for the purpose she wants. Maria just wants her best friend back, just wants her, this woman that she knows and respects and loves to be Carol again. And, you know, Monica filling her in because she loves her and wants to say, you know, Auntie Carol, you don't have your memories. Let me tell you, here are all these pictures from your life. You didn't have a family, so you became our family. Mm, that's a great um, line. That's a, that's they, a lovely line. They do line. it purely because they love her. As you said, it's Maria who gives, mm-hmm. who, who reminds Carol of her identity. And it's right after Carol had said, I have no idea who I am. That's, the, that's that Jesus moment. Who do you say that I am? And then we get her identity, but it's from Maria's perspective. Yeah, you are, Carol Dennis, you are the woman, you, you're my best friend. Who, that's an identity. Best friend is an identity. And you supported me as this and as this. And this is who I see. I say you are. Before you became powerful in the way that you think you, you know, before you could shoot fire out of your fist, you were powerful. She didn't need... The, the power of the stone. It's also, I was watching this uh, throughout the film. It's also the first time Carol cries. Her, she has like one very dramatic, good job, Brie Larson, one dramatic tear falling down her face. And throughout the rest of the film, she tears up um, kind of regularly. She When she's apologizing to Soren, uh, to Talos's spouse, um, she has tears in her eyes. She has tears in her eyes when she's confronting the supreme intelligence on the ship, talking about how she was stolen away from her family and friends. And because throughout this whole movie, 
the Cree have been told the Cree and the men in her past, the boys and the men in her past have been telling her that her emotions are what makes her weak. She can't do it. She can't drive a go-kart or climb a rope or hit a baseball. She's weak. She's emotional. She's not worth worthy. And in this moment of discovering her power, discovering who she is and who she, she was and now can be, she's able to use her tears as a, as a way of strengthening her, her affirmation and, and acknowledging the incredible tragedy that's been, you know, that is her life being stolen away from her. Losing those relationships with the people she cares about is a terrible thing and it's okay to cry about it. And so she does and still is able to defeat the supreme intelligence and break free and fight against her old team. It doesn't make her weaker. It makes her stronger. Interesting. And, and, and near the end of the movie, Jude <clears throat> Law says, without us, you are weak, flawed, helpless. We saved you. You know, without us, you're only human. You, you know, this, this, mm. and, and that's, I think what you're saying, you know, her tears are almost her embracing of that humanity and not just humanity, but a feminine humanity. Um, not that men can't be emotional or anything and not that women are only emotional, right. but that in this particular movie, the tear is symbolizing her embracing of all, of all that she is, no matter what people have told her about herself. And, and I, and the Supreme intelligence, you know, emphasizing that saying it's cute, how hard you try. I don't know if how many of people listening to this podcast have kind of heard that, you know, d- infantilizing, diminishing, like, oh, you're trying hard. Good job. Um, with obviously the expectation that you, you try, but you don't succeed. And that's when, you know, she's telling her you're, you're flawed. We saved you. And the Supreme Intelligence says, on Hala, you were reborn, Veers. And she says, my name is Carol. So she claims back that identity, not that they created her, but the, the one that she was born to, human, powerful, emotional, and able and sassy, and able to be the full person of who she is. And I think that leads, at least in my mind, to that final showdown back on earth with Jan, with Jude Law, Jan Rog. <laughs> when he tries to claim her back again, he tries to play the mentor and it just comes off as so sketchy and skeevy. He's like, I'm so proud of you. You've come so far. I know. And then he tries to goad her into tamping down her power saying like, you know, turn off the light show and prove to me you can beat me without. And then she slams him back with the power and she says, doesn't even let him finish. I have nothing to prove to you. He has no claim on her anymore. She doesn't have to live up to his ridiculous expectations. She has her own expectations for herself and they're far superior than what he wants her to do. As we wrap up our conversation around Captain Marvel, uh, how do we take this story and kind of apply it to our own identities and how Mm. we move about in the world? That's a great question. And I think it's, it's ultimately the call that we discern as, as humans. A lot of people want to tell us who we should be and who we are, and they might not have our best interests in mind. For example, advertising companies will tell us that we need the things that they, they produce, so we will buy them. And I think our call is to discern from the voices of the people who love us, from the voice inside ourselves that is our true self, from praying and and connecting with God who created us and wants us to be fully human, fully ourselves and living the the life that we are, you know, we are made for, the vocations that we are intended for. And maybe just the, the, the journey is to learn which voices to listen to. Uh, the whole, everyone will want to tell us who, who they say we are, but we have to actually figure out who do we think we are and what goes into that. 
What about you? And who, who, who is the Maria Rambo mm. in, mm-hmm. in our lives that, that is able to reflect back to us who that true self really is? I, I think that just two real quick things from the movie that, that help us sort of close this up are our first Carol's call sign becomes the name of the Avengers. Uh, and so we actually see a piece of her identity from before anybody oh. was, you know, anybody was hit by blue energy. <laughs> um, <laughs> becomes a shaping. Beca- becomes a shaping. And the last one, Carol actually has a similar thing as Steve Rogers that she was already she, the, the hero happens and then they get powers. That's a fairly common trope in a lot of these stories. Not every hero is like that, but you know, several of them, especially the most honorable ones, are these people who, who were already truly themselves and then they were granted powers. And it really was the, the who they are that made them the, the hero and not you know, oh, how, how hard they could punch or, or whatever. Yeah, I love that connection to Captain America as well big hero moment, as Maria says, about, you know, about Carol's choice to go up, up in the air with, with Dr. Lawson. Big hero moment. This season on the podcast for our book club, we'll be working through Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. That decision came after a lot of discussion between Adam and I around my favorite series and some rather disturbing uh, views that J.K. Rowling holds that have been made more public and doubled down on, around, specifically around uh, treatment of trans women and her, I, I think, abhorrent views of, well, shoot, I get really emotional around this. <laughs> Why don't you jump in? Uh, where we, as we decided to to tackle Harry Potter, we decided that ever since we started this podcast, we've been reading through Harry Potter and we have been pointed out moments in the books where we've been uncomfortable with the writing. And, uh, and uh, Carrie is often, will often say that uh, many works of fiction and Harry Potter in, in particular have become really owned by their fan bases and where we are fans of Harry Potter and not necessarily fans of uh, JK Rowling, especially in her, in her uh, fairly recent statements that um, are very discriminatory. Um, And so the, 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 uh, the challenge that we had as we started thinking about what we were going to do this season had to do with, are we endorsing JK Rowling by talking about Harry Potter or are we living within, uh, in, in a huge fan base that has taken that work and made it their own apart from the author? Right. And, and, can we still approach these books with love, but also with um, more critical eyes, realizing there are a lot of problematic elements of them. Um, one of the biggest themes that Potterheads took and really have made you know, the, a central part of our identities is, is not holding bigoted ideas or identities and not discriminating against others. That's a huge foundational part of these novels and one that we see on full force in the beginning of Prisoner of Azkaban. So even if the author has seemingly abandoned those, those values, um, in, this, in this case at least, it does not mean that we can't take these works and learn from them and continue to enjoy them while also having a critical eye about the author and um, 
using it, using the books to fuel our own works, um, to be more inclusive, to reach out to people who have been marginalized, who are at risk of violence because of their identities, just because of who they are and our messed up societal ideas about who they should be. Hmm. Hey, that kind of goes back to what we just talked about with Captain Marvel. Hey, hey. It's all like right, look at there's that. There's a theme here. We plan that. So um, we will be so, doing Azkaban yeah. Yeah, um, so, and asking some questions as we go, not just indeed. about um, maybe presentations of gender or body image, but also um, some maybe problematic racial things that she writes about, particularly in, her, in, in Azkaban. So stay tuned. Yeah, so we'll st- we are going to go ahead and uh, start with our little recap here. Chapter one is Owl Post. Our story begins back at Privet Drive on the eve of Harry's 13th birthday, as he lays under his covers doing his homework in secret. This summer, he was able to retrieve his spell books out of the closet under the stairs and is able to let Hedwig out, a small but noticeable improvement on the previous summer. Finishing up the night, Harry realizes it's past midnight and he is now 13 years old. Three owls appear, bringing Harry messages and presents from his friends and his first ever birthday cards. He learns that Ron and his family are in Egypt, using money they won in a prize drawing, and Hermione's in France. Harry falls asleep, for once glad it is his birthday. Chapter 2, Aunt Marge's Big Mistake After watching the news, learning of the presence of an armed and highly dangerous escaped convict named Sirius Black, Harry gets a nasty shock. Uncle Vernon's unpleasant and mean-tempered sister, Marge, is coming to visit for a week. Harry makes a bargain with Uncle Vernon. He'll be on his best behavior and keep his abnormality under wraps while Marge is visiting, if Vernon will sign a permission form for Harry to go to Hogsmeade during the school year. This plan holds up well until Marge's last night when she says one too many insulting things about Harry's family, and he blows up. Well, actually, he blows her up by accident and flees the house, fearing his expulsion from Hogwarts. Chapter 3, The Night Bus Hopeless and helpless in the night, Harry considers doing more magic to escape his muggle neighborhood when he is startled by the presence of a large black dog. Stumbling over his trunk, he accidentally summons the triple-deckered violet-colored night bus, which brings him to London. On the way, Harry learns that the escaped convict, Sirius Black, is a wizard and a supposed supporter of Voldemort. He was put in Azkaban after Voldemort's demise, as he killed 13 people. Exiting the bus straight into the strangely amiable arms of Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, Harry learns he will not be expelled and his magical outburst will instead be swept under the rug. Fudge encourages him to stay in Diagon Alley and remain safe. Chapter 4, The Leaky Cauldron. For the first time ever, Harry enjoys his summer. It turns out living in a hotel at the end of a magical shopping district is fun, especially for a 13-year-old boy with a lot of gold to spend. He controls his impulses to buy an outlandish amount of useless junk and instead responsibly buys his school books. Ron and the Weasleys show up along with Hermione, who ends up buying the ill-tempered cat Crookshanks, which takes an immediate dislike to Ron's rat scabbers. On the final night in Diagon Alley, Harry overhears the Weasley parents arguing and learns that he, specifically, is in danger from Sirius Black. So speaking of setups, here's a perfect example of people's prejudices and misunderstandings leading to an assumption of who is good and who is bad. This whole book, especially in the beginning, I think is a setup for us to distrust Sirius Black, to sort of hint at future events to come of he's going to come back and attack Harry, maybe intending to follow a plot structure similar to books one and two, which were fairly straightforward. 
But instead we get this wonderful reveal later in the books that actually everything they know is wrong and Sirius is a great guy. But in these initial chapters, they really do set him up as a bad guy. And there's there's the one thing that makes me really uncomfortable about the way that this character is set up as mm-hmm. the bad guy is his last name. Right, which they refer to him mostly only by his yeah, surname. Just capital letter black. Mm-hmm. And And again, I'm not saying that J.K. Rowling is intentionally using the word black to set up a supposedly bad character, Mm -hmm. but just that uh, our society as Western English speaking people has created a dichotomy where white is seen as good and black is seen as bad, Mm -hmm. which is a racist presentation of those two color words. And it is the one that our culture is steeped in so that we are often using phrases in which the word black has a negative connotation and the word white has a positive connotation. Um, You know, a black cat walking by your pass, Uh, Mm. to be blackballed or be on a black list, you know, as opposed to something that is um, white White as the driven snow, a white knight versus a black knight. Um, And so those words are freighted in our in in the english speaking world with connotations racist connotations specifically racist connotations and i and 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 i'm very uncomfortable with the way that this story deploys mm. the name black specifically because it plays on our fears of blackness and as people who are who are raised and programmed in a culture of white supremacy and anti-blackness just having that name invoked immediately brings up all these assumptions and negativity that, again, might not be consciously deployed, but is working on all of us in America and even the UK, um, which which is also, a, you know, has white supremacist leanings as well. And that's, that kind of does a lot of the, the groundwork of establishing him as a bad character. Yeah, just imagine if his name were a different color. What mm-hmm. if his name was Sirius Green? Serious blue. Yeah, serious blue. You know, it's like, oh, blue is on the loose again. Green is blue on is the loose danger. again. Blue is it? It doesn't have the same uh, it, it ring that mm-hmm. black does for playing on fears of what would end up being a mostly white audience. Right. To, and, to these books. And and as a reader who developed this awareness slowly over time, I was not, you know, and I'm still on a journey of of port of confronting the racist instincts that I've been taught by growing up in this society. I didn't notice this until Adam pointed it out. And then as rereading it this time, it started to really bother me and disturb me how many times they refer to him not as serious black, but just as black. Uh, the, the way that we use our language actually uh, changes our thought processes. Um, and so when we are using the word black for negative reasons, it reinforces racist uh, racist stereotypes and racist history that makes it even harder for white people like you and me to break free of those um, of that programming that white supremacy has placed in our society. Um, and 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 it's not just you know J.K. Rowling. I mean, you go back and read the Lord of the Rings, and black things are bad all throughout Lord of the Rings, and white things are good all throughout Lord of the Rings. It's it's a pretty common thing throughout. 
so as I was reading this, and I didn't look, when I was, you know, when I read this book originally, I'd never thought of that either. This is something more more recent as from a critical reading of Harry Potter for me as well. Um, Reading it this time and and starting to look for some more of of that sort of societal privilege that the author is putting into these works just in the first two in the first chapter when we're we're learning kind of humorously about Harry's schoolwork and, mm-hmm. and so forth we hear about the witch burnings that you know the, the paper mm-hmm. is called witch burnings in the 14th century are completely pointless discuss discuss <laughs> except for all of the people who would have been muggles mm-hmm. who would have been captured and you know <laughs> and, and right. put on trial as witches it was only pointless for from the wizarding perspective, from the right. wizarding perspective, right? Oh, that's so, a good so point. what? What if they? You know, it says because it says the the quote is on the rare occasion they did catch a real witch. Oh, yeah, and how many people they would have killed? Yeah, so um, we always have to be, pers- uh, you know, looking at this from the perspective, from many perspectives, our own perspective, the writer's perspective, the society's perspective that would be consuming the work, um, and doing something like that with Harry Potter allows us to train ourselves for doing that with the Bible. And, and reading the point, Bible yeah. like that is really, really helpful. The other one is Bill Weasley being a curse breaker in Egypt. This mm-hmm. plays into an especially British, you know, uh, problem of ransacking other ancient, uh, ancient cultures and taking their treasures back to England. Yeah, because I guess Gringotts, I'm assuming is a specifically British bank. He's working for the bank, which is centered in England. We assume that the one in Diagon Alley is like the head office or whatever. And why else would he be there if not for plundering tombs? Mm, He's a curse breaker. There's the only reason that they'd be there would be to take treasure, right? That's what Bell's job is. Yeah. Uh, um, And so what we have here is is this British perspective, the kind of British imperial perspective Mm -hmm. being, again, used in kind of a humorous way. Um, to talk about Bill Weasley's job. Oh, we were going to shut him in a pyramid. We're, we didn't like Percy, so we we're going to shut mm-hmm. him in a pyramid, right? Um, so it's just interesting the way when you start reading this critically, you see a lot of these um, emanations from uh, real life being placed in the in these books from an imperial perspective, a racist perspective. Um, they exist, maybe not necessarily consciously, and probably not consciously, but that's actually the problem. Right. It is. It's unexamined. Well, because, because at least in the terms of Sirius's name, I mean, J.K. Rowling frequently uses clever names. Names are huge in Harry Potter. I mean, the, you know, Ernie Prang, for example, you know, that's British slang for like to bang up a car and he's a terrible bus driver. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's other, you know, just look at the Vernon Dursley is such a like a rounded, mm-hmm. normal kind of name. All the names are deployed. I mean, even names, Voldemort, we need, you know. Voldemort, Remus yeah. Lupin, which means Wolf McWolfy face. <laughs> Surprise, he turns into a werewolf. He's a wolf. Um, he's really wolf. So she does put a lot of thought into names. So she did pick Sirius the dog star, and he's a dog. Um, black. That, that I think that isn't that's intentionally playing off of this connotation, which again, not intending to be racist, but ultimately furthering this racist anti-black agenda that we are all steeped in. Um, and how and how she names characters so it's it is unfortunate you know and the thing is black himself is described as having waxy white skin yeah so the character himself is a white guy yeah it's not that's not what we're talking about we're talking about the actual just the use of the word black as his name here it's it, and i know we're making a lot a big deal about this but it, it i think it really is a big deal 
Well, and especially as we grow as readers, um, we should be re-examining this and looking at the, the problematic narratives that we were taught unconsciously and consumed by reading and watching Western media that comes out everywhere. Um, that is, you know, that the sort of, you know, black is evil and or, or in subservience to white. Um, th those are all narratives that we are spoon fed from, you know, the day we're born and that we need to re-examine. So for me, taking Harry Potter from a more critical perspective has been a big learning curve and a difficult one, um, but one that I think is really important. Yeah, and and we, we even within the this the text, this one might make you really cringe. Uh oh, I, so I, I, I hesitate to mention it. But talking about again that blackness, and again we're talking about a British writer who doesn't have an American perspective, but mm -hmm. as an American reader reading this critically in 2020. Vernon Dursley says, no need to tell us he's no good. Oh, yeah. Now, later, when will they learn that hanging's the only way to deal with these people? Right. So as an American reader, talking about somebody named Black, I'm immediately thinking about racial terror lynchings when we're talking about hanging. Right. I don't think the British author was thinking about it from that perspective. But to have a character like Vernon Dursley, this establishment you know, supposedly, you know, uh, run of the mill muggle being, you know, well, he, we need, we need capital punishment. This is, this is the only way to deal with people like this. Yeah. Well, and even his quickness to judge that, that he's, he's, he's jumping ahead to, you know, I learned one thing about this guy, which is that our society has imprisoned him. Therefore he is guilty. Therefore he's one of those people who needs to be hanged. Right. And we I don't mean, even know what he's guilty of at that we don't point. Even know, yeah. We don't even know anything, anything about that. And that's, you know, part of the difficulty of our current, current societies. People are acting, police are acting before um, any, any judgment has been passed um, in, a, in a legal standpoint. And the public is warned that black is armed, extremely dangerous. A special hotline has been set up, you know, so we're going to get Karen to call on, <laughs> on black and any sightings of black should be reported immediately. Yeah. It's, this, it's really, um, this is, these are tough chapters to read when you, when you apply this, this um, perspective to them. Well, and especially given that one of the big themes in the early chapters, I mean, having Aunt Marge loom, you know, casting her, annoying shadow over these chapters, one of her biggest character flaws among many is how bigoted she is and how judgmental she is. She assumes so much about Harry's parents. They were drunks, layabouts, just because Vernon says they were unemployed. And she's willing to extend that to the point of comparing like Harry to a puppy that needs to be drowned. Um, just really intolerant and awful and bigoted views. And obviously you're not meant to enjoy her or like her as a character, um, as a reader. And so to have this, you know, Harry, Harry's going to be, you know, standing against this intolerance, he's putting up with this bigotry, and yet we're still steeped in this environment of, that we can't escape from, of racial intolerance. And, um, well, there's also a lot of fat phobia in these early chapters. Yeah, I noticed um, that too. Yeah. A lot of <laughs> a lot fat shaming. A lot of talk about Dudley's Lots of chins. Yeah, we shouldn't be shaming Dudley for being fat. We should be shaming, well, maybe his parents for providing him with an environment in which he's clearly unhealthy, as we find out later in the books, um, but also for, you know, dealing with his laziness by providing him with a television yeah, in, um, in, in the, the kitchen. kitchen. <laughs> That's what should be perhaps shamed, not not his actual body. 
Ooh, it's rough. <laughs> it's rough. It's rough. Uh, and then we get to we get to diagonal. We get to the we get to, we meet Cornelius Fudge, and then Harry is left alone for two weeks as a thirteen year old in the middle no. of London. Okay, well, Tom's watching over him. Tom wakes right. him up Tom, every day with a sure. cup of tea, and his, which his is mirror, his a mirror truly is delightful. Good. Oh yeah, his mirror is watching over him. <laughs> um, so then he goes he goes through diagonal. We get all that stuff. Um, I love that chapter. I mean, I, I love the idea of a 13-year-old boy sitting outside the ice cream parlor and getting fed on the half hour a whole ice cream sundae, which is a great business strategy by Florian. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So we're going to let Harry distribute these half-hourly yes. <laughs> ice creams to everybody oh, as they Oh, I imagine he was eating them. Oh, you thought that he was going to eat all I of them? I imagine that he creams. would be able to eat one half every half hour oh, for that's a, a day. That's he's, a, maybe, yeah. He's, he's a, 13. You know, he's 13. He's 13 and he's been starved his whole life. And that's he true. loves sweets. So, all right. He does. I, I was thinking that he was going to pass them out to people as they walked by, but okay. Oh, no. But I like yours better. Um, so then they, um, did these chapters end with the, the scene in the, um, first in the pet shop and then in the leaky cauldron in the pet shop, we start getting the hints about scabbers, um, where we have, well, scabbers is way older than a rat has any business being, mm-hmm. um, he's missing a toe, uh, which, which we don't know yet why that is important, but it's dropped here as a hint. Um, he also is looking thin and woebegone, like more than normal. Uh, right. And it is passed off as Egypt didn't, didn't do him any favors. Didn't agree with him. Didn't agree with him. Um, but, but those are the hints that once you're reading the book more than once, you go, Oh, this is where, this is where the author. And I actually, I, I think one of JK Rowling's incredible strengths as a storyteller is her ability to, to drop innocuous details that end up being incredibly important later. Like that, the, the fact that they won, I mean, if you think about it, the fact that the Weasleys won that prize drawing and went to Egypt and was photographed with scabbers on his shoulder, put in the Daily Prophet. Fudge brought the newspaper to Azkaban to talk to Sirius Black, who saw the photo, which realized, and he put it all together, like anyone, that's a, a masterful chain of events. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of steps. And so she is able to hint at at all of the th- the pieces that then again, that are hinted at enough that they don't come out of nowhere later on, but it takes some getting used to. Um, and then at the very end, we get the conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, which they completely change in the movie. Because in the movie, doesn't Mr. Weasley just bring Harry aside and say, "Yeah, you're like nobody wants me to tell you this," but grabs him by the scruff of the neck. Yeah, but in the book, it's just a conversation between the parents. Yes, that he accidentally overhears, which I do love, and we'll get this in the next chapter. You know, he's like, "Well, I already heard your argument, so you don't have to tell me, so you won't be lying or breaking your uh, promise." Yeah, right. He's such a considerate young man. Um, and Mr. Weasley talking about what are at the moment called Azkaban guards, because we'll learn that they're dementors in the next chapter, mm-hmm. says, when you're dealing with a wizard like Black, you sometimes have to join forces with those you'd rather avoid. Ooh, yeah. Um, and especially since we know that the dementors at the end of the, the end of all the books end up um, with Voldemort, right? Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. That's that's accurate, correct? Yeah, there. The yeah, end of, yeah. Then with Voldemort, then, um, we know that the uh, Wizarding Society of England has created some sort of incarceration criminal justice system mm-hmm. that is incredibly unjust, fully um, inhumane, and very inhumane. And the un- and ironically, the only way that Sirius is able to survive it is by becoming a dog. Right. Right. By turning into his dog form. 
And to think that he was placed there without a trial is even more abhorrent. And they, they did not even send him to trial. So he's been placed in this, in this awful, desolate place with these creatures that literally suck the life out of you. But and Hager happened there for two months last, last year. Again, without a trial with based nothing. on a, oh, the wizarding criminal justice system <laughs> is so messed up. I hope Hermione, as the uh, later head of the magical law enforcement department, has something to say about this. I do too. Let's, let's hope so. Let's hope so. All right. Well, that was, that was, that was good. Um, a lot to talk about there. And Absolutely. Um, I know as we get further into the story, we'll talk more about some of the thematic and uh, story elements. Uh, I know we were pretty focused here on uh, particular words and particular um, elements of, of characterization and description. Um, but we haven't really gotten into the plot of the story yet. So we'll get into that next time when we are reading what? Next time on the book club, we'll be reading chapters five, six, and seven. That's The Dementor, Talons and Tea Leaves, and The Boggart in the Wardrobe. We'll see you then. We'll see you then? <laughs> I always say that, you, but it's you, like, you, what? You will, you will hear us then. <laughs> you will hear us then on those topics. <laughs> Tweet us. Oh, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians. And on Twitter at nerdychristians, that's where Carrie is. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. Uh, I am just, I just published the fourth book of the Shields of Sularo, which is, which is a, a four book series about a Dungeons and Dragons game, but it reads like a novel. I hope the A team. Um, yeah. What, what Carrie, Carrie's group calls the A team. The set it's called seven of shadow. It's out now. Uh, the, the, there are three other books, Torniel, the jeweled city and true sight lead up to seven of shadow, but the whole series is out now. So if you, if you're itching to read about a Dungeons and Dragons game in novel form, uh, or maybe a novelization is probably novelization the right, of right a campaign, term. novelization of a campaign, kind of like dragon Lance back in the day. Um, then those are up on Amazon right now. The most recent being seven of shadow. And you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for nerdy Christians. We are created in God's image. We are human, full of stories, emotions, and relationships. Our pasts do not distract us, but they ground us. Our relationships do not diminish us, but remind us who we are. Our anger does not weaken us, but focuses us. We pray for wisdom to see through the lives we have been told by those who want to use us, and instead, see who we really are, who God calls us to be, and to serve as God calls us to serve. Amen.